I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Welcome to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast, where we help you wake up, find your purpose, and build your dream life. I am so excited for this episode today. I am so excited for this episode today with Andre Norman. Andre is on a mission to help people turn their situations around. He travels around the world to serve as a mentor and listening ear for those in need. He is the founder of the Ambassador for Hope, an organization that has the goal of diminishing violence inside the prisons through programs that include mentoring, community outreach to at-risk youth, training, and more. From a childhood filled with gang violence, illiteracy resulting in a 100-plus year prison sentence, to a successful career as a speaker, author, and Harvard fellow, Andre has an absolutely extraordinary, amazing story. I am so excited to share his life story with you today and how he is helping thousands of people in prison today turn their life around, and build a purpose-driven life. With that, enjoy the show. Andre, what's going on? Welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. Thanks for having me, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So you have quite the story. I was listening to interviews ahead of this one, read a lot about your story, and just excited to dive in here. Let's roll. So yeah, so maybe to kick things off, you can share a little bit about your story, wherever the beginning is for you. Well, grew up in Boston, five brothers and sisters, so there were six of us. Um, life was cool, except for my mom and dad used to fight a lot. So you had to deal with that. And then you finally got old enough to go to school. And school was super fun. I loved playing with a lot of other kids. But I grew up in a busing crisis era in Boston, where there was all the upheaval about black kids going to school with white kids, and they was throwing rocks at the buses and go through that. Then finally, mom and dad break up. And then you got a single mom, six kids living in the city. And you know how that goes. She's struggling to try to make ends meet. I'm like one of the youngest, so I'm trying. I got all these needs, but I don't understand. I want my older brothers and sisters to understand. And I get to middle school. Kids make fun of you because you don't have all the cool stuff. So I start hustling after school to make some money to get the stuff that my mom couldn't buy me. And by the time I got out in the street, I could now buy clothes. I can buy socks. I can buy my own lunch, stuff like that. And in the sixth grade, Miss Ellis gave me a trumpet. And she put me in the band. And I played in the band all through middle school. I get to high school. She made me go to a magnet school that had a music program. When I got there, all my kids that I knew was out hustling after after school. So I'd hang out with them. But in the morning, I'd go to band class. So like the first two periods of the day, I'm in band, like having the greatest time, hanging out with a bunch of nerds. And as soon as band was over, I hang out with the thugs. And that was my day. Band in the morning, thugs in the afternoon. Until one day, my friends told me, man, you need to get rid of that box, right? That trumpet is stupid. And they convinced me to get rid of my trumpet because it wasn't cool to them. And once I gave up my trumpet, man, uh, my life was just, I had no purpose. I didn't understand it at 14 that that trumpet was my way out. 
But when I gave it up, I just woke up with no purpose, no direction. I was in the streets full time, ended up going to prison, got sent to prison. When I got there, it was like a reunion of all my friends from the dummy class, all my friends who quit band or quit sports or quit this or quit that. They were all at the prison just waiting for me. So mm-hmm. I get there and it's like 18 at the penitentiary and it was just like crazy. What would you say were the main elements of your childhood that led to prison? The main elements of my childhood is I didn't have mentors. I had people who cared about me. There's a difference between people who care about you and mentors. I can list you 20 people who love me and cared about me, but I can't list you 20 people who were able to get through to me and communicate with me the things that I should be doing in my life. So mm-hmm. most kids that I know, because I go to schools now, there's that person who instilled in them the belief that they could do and be better. That's the thing that I was missing, that somebody instilled in me the belief that I believe that I could do and be better, not just follow the crowd. That makes sense. You went to prison when you were 18 years old? 18. Would you say at that point you had no, you really didn't have a mentor at that point in your life? Definitely no. The mentors I had were all negative. I mean, you copy the people that are around you. So if you're around criminals, you do criminal stuff. (laughs) I was around criminals all day, so I did criminal stuff. So I wouldn't call them mentors, but that's lack of a better term. Yeah. Would you say leading up to ending up in prison, it sounds like you were in your like late teens when you started like uh, really getting into street life? 14. 14. And at that point, I'm curious, did you have a sense that prison might be a part of my future or were you really just focused on like helping your mom out and making ends meet? I only want to tell the truth. I wasn't taking the money home and giving it to my mom. <laughs> I was taking the money and going buy cool stuff so I can be accepted. I mean, it would have been really noble if I took the money home and gave it to my mom. I didn't do that. I wanted the cool shoes, the cool backpack, the cool hat, the cool video games, all that type stuff. Yeah. So when you're doing that in your late teens and you know that like prison could be a part of the equation, is that something you're taking into account at that point in your life or no? I would equate it to people who play sports. It's a fact that anytime you walk on a football field or any field or any court, you could get injured. Mm. Who thinks about that before the game? I think I'm going to break my leg today. It's just, <laughs> you know, there's always a possibility in a reality, especially if you play sports like football, but yeah. you don't think about it. You just go out and say, hey, it's not going to happen to me. Even though mm-hmm. everybody around you end up with a broken leg, twisted ankle, whatever, you still think that you're invincible. So you do these things, you end up in prison. How do you navigate life in prison as an 18-year-old? You don't. <laughs> life navigates you. When you get off the bus, you know nobody. So you're, where are you from? New York, right? Yeah. If you go to prison in New York, the first thing they're going to say is, where are you from? You from Albany? You from Rochester? You from New York City? You from Long Island? Long Island. And as soon as you get off the bus, they're going to say, where are you from? You're going to say, Long Island. You're with the white guys from Long Island. Instantly. Because what you have with them is rapport. They're from the same neighborhoods. They went to the same schools. They hung out the same corners, went to the same clubs. You probably know the same people. They know your older brothers and sisters. They know where you live because they're from the neighborhood. So you have instant rapport. And trust is everything with this group. So you look like them, you're from where they're from, they instantly receive you. Now, if you're not really tough enough or you're kind of weak, they'll get rid of you. But upon entry, you're instantly with the white guys from Long Island. So when I came in, I was instantly with the black guys from my neighborhood. And they teach you how to do time. After white guys from Long Island get high a lot, guess what you're going to end up doing? Getting high a lot. If the white guys from Long Island lift weights every day, guess what you're going to end up doing? Lift the weights every day. If they go to law library, what you're going to do? You're going to do whatever they do because you're trying to stay alive and figure this stuff out. When I got there, the guys that I got around 
they were selling contraband and they were fighting and stabbing people. So that's the box that I fell into. Mm, that makes sense. So how long was your sentence for? My initially, I got a seven to 10, two nine to 10s, two 10s, two 15 to 20s and a five. So I had to do about, and that about 16, 17 years. And while I was inside, I picked up 10 more years. So it pushed it up to like, I supposed to do 20 something. What's that like as someone who's, you're 18 years old and do you realize that like your life for the next several years taken from you or not really? You live day to day. I've been living day to day since I was in the first, second grade. So finding something to eat, finding some clothes, finding shelter, whatever you're doing is day to day. When you go into the street life, there's no guarantee. You don't want to die, but people get murdered in the street every day. And if you're out there, the odds of you getting murdered are real, but you don't think I'm going to be the guy to get murdered today. You just get up and you go. So when you go to prison, by the time you reach prison, you've been through enough stuff to condition you. You're thinking about prison as somebody who's never really been in jail or juvie or out on the street full time, I'm assuming. So I've been in the street since I was in sixth grade. Yeah. I've been in and out of police cars since I was in the eighth grade. So I've been in and out of juvie since I was in the ninth grade. So by the time you get to prison, you've been conditioned for this lifestyle. You're not just dropping out of the sky like, wow. What is this? Locked doors. I mean, you've been dealing with it most of your life up until that point. Yeah. So once you're in there, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to transform your life, that you wanted to change the course of your life, the direction of your life? I spent six years following the crowd, full flat. Boom, head on, whatever the crowd doing, Andre's doing. And it led me to catching more cases. It led me to go to solitary confinement for two and a half years. It led me to getting shipped around the country to nine different states. I mean, I was all in. Then finally I woke up one day and I realized I'm the king of nowhere. This dream that I'm chasing, it's not even my dream. This thing that I'm trying to be was never in my thoughts as a, as a kid. Never once when I was 14, 15, I said, I want to be the king of the jail. When I ended up in jail, I said, hey, let's be the king of the jail. And oftentimes people will have their own dreams, but they'll run into a circumstance and create a whole new dream out of nothing. It doesn't fit them. It doesn't suit them. So I finally woke up one day and realized I was being becoming the king of nowhere, and I didn't want to be that. Was there something specifically that happened, or was it just you sort of had this aha moment? No, I mean, I'm in the hole for some violent acts, and the day before, I was about to attack some more people, and I was, you keep moving, it's like mythical pound-for-pound best fighter in boxing. Mm. The more people you fight, the bigger your name gets. So I'm about to fight these seven guys, and it's going to push my name up to the top. And that was the goal. Then I realized if I do this, I win, but I lose. Yeah, that makes sense. So how did you actually start to transform your life? I went back to my cell that day. I didn't attack anybody. I said, okay, if, it, if I don't want to be a psychopath, there's no point in being in jail. Prison and psychopath goes together. <laughs> it didn't make sense to be in prison anymore because I didn't want to be a psychopath anymore. So I said, I want to go home and be free. And I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys, the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who went to church, the guys who played chess, the guys who were philosophers. Everybody went home. Everybody came back. Said free don't work. So I said, I want to be successful. So I said, I'll go home. I'll go to Harvard and I'll be successful. I picked Harvard University because it's the only school I knew the name of. I'm from Boston. So I came out my cell the next day. I got my guys together. I said, yo, figure this out. Check this. I'm going home. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. Everybody thought I was crazy. Mm. I told them like three times. They're like, Dre, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? They said, you're black. They said, you're a gang leader. They said, you attack people. They said, you're in solitary confinement for attacking people. You were talking about attacking people yesterday. 
you can't read, you're poor. They told me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. And all I was hearing was not them, but my friends in the ninth grade who stole my trumpet. It's all I was hearing. The same things they said to me in the ninth grade about my trumpet, these guys were saying about Harvard. So I just was like, come on, man, y'all are bugging. I waved them. And this is the thing. These same guys, if I said to them, yo, I got a beef with these guys over here, they put knives on, strap up, and they run over and fight with me to the death. Say, hey, man, we about to go fight the guards, man. They disrespected me. They'll put on their gear, they'll ride out, and they'll go fight the guards to the death. No matter what I said, there was a negative. They say yes. The first time in six and a half years, I said, let's do something positive. They said no. They were conditioned to stay in that place. So while you're in prison, though, you sort of put this message out into the world that you're going to go to Harvard. You're going to change, you're going to change your life. You're going to turn the direction of your life. Your friend said no. How did you actually take that first step? And I guess also for you, how do you see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel? Because, you know, it's not like maybe if you're out of jail, you could start to take some immediate action. I'm sure it was more challenging because first, were you like, I have to figure out how to get out of here as a starting point? First thing I did was I went back. I realized I was by myself. I had to accept that my family and my friends weren't going to support this. And I accepted being alone because oftentimes we try to convince people to go this journey with us. And we spend so much time waiting for people who aren't going. Mm. My mother used to say to me when I came home, I used to travel a lot. I, all my friends would come by the house. Oh, Dre, we're going to go with you. We're going to go with you. And every day I was going to leave, my mother stayed with me at the time. She would say, Andre. I said, what's up? I said, who's not going with you this time? That was her famous saying. Who's <laughs> not going with you this time? Because everybody comes by the house and sits in the kitchen and they hear about all these places you're traveling around the world and they say they want to go. And every day you get up to go out the door to take that trip, nobody ever goes with you. So I went in my cell. I wrote down all the things that I needed to do to achieve my goal. Then I looked in the mirror. I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this from happening? And I started working on my list. I got my GED. Then I went to anger management because I had an anger management problem. I went to mental health because I had a psychological problem. I started going to NA and AA so I could learn 12 steps on how to self-govern. Even though I didn't have drinking and alcohol problems, 12 steps works for anger too. Then I started going to the law library and I taught myself the law. I started every day doing something positive and constructive. I did that for eight years. And it was probably three years in, I overturned my case. And then three or four, I mean, I'm eight years in, new case gone, anger management, psychology, mental health counseling, college classes, you name it, I was taking. So when I came home, eight years after I said it, I walked out with an eight-year head start in the plan. I like to discuss, it's remarkable, I'd like to discuss getting out of prison. What was that like for you? I went to a program, it was for anger management. I was in there for like two years, going to classes every day. And to get parole in Massachusetts, in most states, you have to complete like an anger management program because most of them are violent crime. So I completed the program, doubled it up. I go to the parole board, they tell me I can go home. There was like seven, eight of us went that day. And most of us got it because we're all in the program. We go back to the program, we high-fiving, we saluting, like, yo, we out of here. 14 years over. The next day, everybody in the program quit. Everybody got parole, quit, moved to a regular housing unit, and started walking the track, talking. I went to the casework and doubled my programs up. It was probably like two weeks in. Dudes were like, Dre, why are you doubling your programs? Why aren't you out here on the yard with us? That's what you're talking about. They said, they can't take your parole. Once you got it, they can't take it unless you get in trouble. So you don't have to be in that unit no more. I said, what are you talking about? They said, yo, you can quit all that stuff. They can't do nothing to you. You got your parole. It's over. I said, bro, I did this program to stay out. I didn't do this program to get out. This is my last chance to get it right. And I did programming up until my last day. And I've been home for 22 years. Most of my friends have been back 23 times. So 
you have to make it make sense and you have to put the effort in. And coming home was scary because I've heard all the stories. I'm coming home post-crack epidemic, post a lot of stuff. You know what I'm saying? It was just crazy in the streets. And then you're coming home and you don't know anything. I went away as a teenager. So yeah, yeah I'm back as a grown man. I don't know anything, anybody. Everybody that I know has moved on to life. So it was scary to come home and try to navigate a world that you've never been in. How challenging was that? Like, how did you navigate that? And it sounds like, you know, you were really committed to, and it was the years leading up to it where you had tremendous commitment to changing your life. But were you scared that now that you're out, it's sort of like a whole new world. Maybe there's less structure in your life at that point as well. But the thing about, I was scared, hands down. It was the same thing I walked into prison. I was scared, not because I wasn't a tough guy, I wasn't a grown man. I'm scared of the unknown. Mm. I don't know what's around the next corner. I don't know what's around the next door. I don't know what the bells and sounds mean. I don't know anything. I walked into the prison, I was scared of the unknown. I walked back into society, scared of the unknown. I don't know who these people are, what they're doing, why they're doing, nothing. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, what's going to happen next? Who's coming around the corner? What does that mean? When I first came home, I went to a juvenile center and I volunteered to speak to the kids. When I went, the craziest thing, it was a locked facility. So I went inside, they opened the door, went to a metal detector, locked the door, locked the door. And while I was in there, I'm like, yo, this is comfortable. I understood a locked facility. So every day almost, I'd go to the juvenile center to decompress my own life because while I was in there, there was no talking, there was no cars, there was no people jogging, and I don't know, there was nothing. It was a locked facility, something that I understood. So I volunteered almost every day. But at two, three hours I was in that building, I felt safe. I could process, I could think through, because when they throw you in the street, the world's moving at 10 million miles an hour. We're used to moving at minus five. Now everything's moving at 10 million. <laughs> and it's so hard to catch up. But when I would go to that juvenile center and lock, the doors would lock. No phones, no nothing, no technology. And you could just, for those three hours, I could decompress. And that was like my little stress reliever on the low. I didn't tell anybody about it. Mm. It's like, Drake loves coming to talk to us. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> What's it like to go and speak to young kids who are in juvie? What was that like that first time when you went? And I'm curious what you felt in that moment. When I was at the prison, I used to work in a program called Second Thoughts. And the kids would come up from juvie and sit with us and we would talk to them. Because we were then removed by like five or six years, sometimes two years. We've had kids from the program come to the prison and join the program. I mean, 17 in Massachusetts, you're an adult. And we would sit and talk to them about the same issues that we're facing, that they're facing. Being away from home, dealing with gangs, dealing with drugs, dealing with depression, dealing with all the stuff you did with being locked up. Right before I came home, the kids said, hey, Andre, will you come visit us when you get out? They said, everybody in this program says they'll come visit us when they get out, but they never do. Will you come? So I kept my promise. I went to the juvie center. So most of the kids that first day I knew, and they were just happy to see me. And I mm -hmm. went in and I talked to them and I, it's encouraged them. They're like, yo, I told them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. You're going to jail because somebody let you down, it hurts your feelings, and it, you don't know what to do with that. So you self-medicate to cope, and self-medication turns into acts of violence. And at 8 and 9, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let me show you how to control your feelings. Let me show you how to handle the pain that's in your life. You don't have to be in a locked facility. I started doing trauma-informed care 90 minutes after I got out of prison. So it sounds like in many ways you became a mentor for a lot of these young kids in, in some capacity. I'm curious, when you got out, did you or were you able to find a mentor in your own life to help you build your own life or no at that point? Before I came home, I met a guy named Natan Schaefer. He was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi chaplain at the prison. Became my best mentor. He was like, my guy. And I sat with him every Wednesday night and we studied, studied, studied. It wasn't about me becoming Jewish or him becoming black. It was about him teaching me how to be human. Mm. And he did that. Then after that program, I joined another program. It was Catholic Church gave. And I got a priest as a mentor. Then I got two nuns as a mentor. The day I came home, I was part of a church program and they took me to the, to the prison for the juvies. And there was a guy there. There was a caseworker. He was like a parole officer for kids. Super cool guy. And we started talking. He was a Baptist minister. So he became my mentor. So I went rabbi, priest, nuns, Baptist minister. And I collect mentors. And there were some volunteers who used to come to the prison. When I got married, the prison volunteer who used to come see me in the juvenile program at the facility was best man in my wedding. There were two wow. prison volunteers in my wedding. And Tim Allen, who was the first guy I met when I came home, my entire groomsmen, I don't know, my entire team was all pastors, <laughs> religious <laughs> volunteers. It's interesting to hear because it sounds like early on, you know, when you put down the trumpet, when you gave up the trumpet, you were surrounding yourself with people who were up to bad things. And then later on, it sounds like you really surround yourself with an entirely different circle. Oh, listen, I have a board of directors that oversees my life. I have seven men in St. Louis who I go, used to go quarterly before the pandemic. And I would sit down and they go over my life, not board of directors for a company, but for Andre Norman. What is Andre doing? Is Andre healthy? Is he seeing his doctors? Is he paying his taxes? Is he taking care of his kids? Is he getting better on time? What is he doing? And the accountability is tremendous. The more accountability you have, the better you do in life. The more people let you do what you want to do, the less you're going to do in life. Absolutely. You know, one thing that really stands out to me about your story is just how you were able to make such a transformation. And, you know, so many people, they say they want to make some changes in their life. They say, I want to, whatever it is, I want to leave my job. I want to lose some weight. I want to change this area of my life. And they say it, they start it, they stop, and they don't truly commit. I'm curious, you know, why do you think it's so difficult for people to change? And do you have some, it obviously worked for you, but do you have some advice or a framework for others not just say they want to make change in their life, but actually commit and see that change through. Well, accountability is everything. Mentorship, as you mentioned, is huge. And having your own personal why matters. 
if they're on their own in their own space trying to fight their demons, it's so hard. It is so hard. I'm saying so. And then you have a pattern for your life. You have a routine for your life. You get up every day. You do what you do. The same mostly every day. You get up, you brush your teeth, take a shower, go to work, sit on the subway, you get to work, you say hi to Bob, you sit in your cubicle, go to lunch. You had the same stuff you had yesterday. After work, go downstairs. You're going to see the same annoying person in the elevator. You get on the train, you go home, you walk in the house. You might live by yourself. You might be married. You can't stand her. Kids are out of control. Whatever your thing is, it's the same thing every day. And it's a routine that your brain locks into. So when you want to break the pattern of your brain, disruptors, I'm saying if you want to be a disruptor in your own life, you have to first understand the pattern that you're trying to disrupt. You just can't say, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Your muscle memory will always kick in. So you're fighting against muscle memory, not against the thing you want to do. Mm. People think they're fighting against eating. They're fighting against smoking. They're fighting against drinking. No, they're fighting against muscle memory. You have to attack the muscle memory. Don't say, I'm going to do this. This is secondary. The muscle memory is primary. So what? where are you right now? What are your patterns? Most people say, I'm going to lose weight. They don't ever sit to say, well, why are you heavy? <laughs> I want to get a new job. I hate this place. Why are you here? If you understand why you're at the job that you hate, or why you're in a relationship that you hate, or why you are overweight, then you change that, then the outcome changes. People don't do drugs because they want to. They do drugs to run away from something. So if I take your drugs away, denied access isn't a solution, isn't treatment. You have to find out their why for doing drugs, their why for eating too much, their why for working in this dead-end job, or why for being in this that they can't stand. Why did you even get in this thing? It's imperative versus I want out. If you just get out, then you're going to get in it with somebody else. You know, one thing that's come up in my own life or something that I've been more cognizant of over the last 12 months, 24 months has really been taking ownership in my own life and taking like complete responsibility and not blaming my life on the circumstances that have been thrown at me or the circumstances that life threw at me and really taking ownership and saying, it's okay that this thing happened, but I'm going to commit to making this change. I'm curious what you feel around taking ownership and taking complete responsibility it's easy to sometimes, you know, put the blame on your life circumstance or how you were raised or things that happened to you growing up or things like that. And that's something for me personally, that's had an impact in my life, taking ownership and saying these things have happened. But ultimately, if I want to see change in my life, I still need to be the one to make that change. You definitely have to be the one to make the change and life happens. Stop looking at things happening to you as good or bad. If you try to categorize everything as good or bad, you're taking on the bad stuff and you're throwing it in the trash. <laughs> so you can't, I can't say you can't. I don't look good or bad. I look at the experiences and think how I can benefit from them. Mm. Let's take Muhammad Ali. You know the Muhammad Ali story. Him and his little brother grew up in Louisville, Kentucky in the 40s and they cut grass to buy a bike. They go to the movie, somebody steals the bike. And then Muhammad, little Cassius is super upset. They go to the police station. The police officer gets him to the boxing program. Then he goes on to become Cassius Clay, the Olympic boxer, the Olympic champion. He goes on to be Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion, and he goes on to become the greatest man ever to walk the planet. Nobody's ever been called the greatest. You get the GOAT, but only one person called the greatest. And then he dies. And when he dies, they have the phenomenal funeral, the greatest homegoing of anybody ever on the planet. 
fast forward, if I could bring Muhammad Ali back here and sit him in a chair and bring back the guy who stole his bike and sit him in a chair, Muhammad Ali being one of the best boxers of all times would not get up and beat that man up. He would get up and shake his hand and says, I don't like what you did. What you did made me. Mm. You made me. You stealing my bike prompted me to go to the police station that made me who I am. Without you stealing my bike, I don't walk into the police station. Without you stealing my bike, I don't get angry. And somebody sees that anger slash energy and helps me direct it. Mm. So I'm just a happy-go-lucky kid until you make me angry. <laughs> Luckily, there was a cop who saw my anger as energy and knew how to direct it. So without the bike thief, we don't have Muhammad Ali. And there's thousands of people, including all of us, there's that thing that happens that we're not happy about. We're angry, we're distraught, we're hurt. But you got two choices. It can be any energy to fuel you, or it can be energy to drown you. And so many people choose the latter. That I'm going to use this thing, and I'm just going to drown myself every day for the rest of my life because somebody stole my bike when I was 10. Or somebody didn't do this to me when I was 8. Or somebody did this thing to me when I was 12. Whatever happened to you, it can either be the reason you overcome or the reason you give up. Absolutely. And I completely resonate with that. And the worst moments in my life, those are the moments that have shaped my life to have the perspective and the views and the reason why I wake up today every day. If you take the bad things out as well, category, it's category. how do you categorize this thing? Good, bad, or circumstance? Life is going to happen. Every day, hundreds of thousands of people are born. Every day, hundreds of thousands of people pass. That's how the world works. Every day, there are thousands and thousands of accidents. Every day, there are thousands of thousands of people hit the lottery. It's how the world works. <laughs> so for every A that's given out, there's somebody getting the F. Everybody's getting into Harvard, somebody's getting kicked out of school. The world has balance. Balance is real. So you can't say, oh, man, the trees breathe out what we breathe in and vice versa. That's balance. So the world and your life has balance if you want to recognize it or not. So stop categorizing good, bad. Mm, I hear you. Tell us about the Academy of Hope. I'd love if you could talk about that for a little bit. The Academy of Hope is really something I started when I first came home from prison. It's had multiple names. When I first came home, the name of the program was Footprints because I read the poem Footprints and said, that's my life. God carried me through days that I couldn't see and carry myself and through all my storms. Then fast forward, I've been using various names. Four years ago, there was a riot in the prison in South Carolina, and seven men lost their lives. 30 people were wounded, the entire prison system locked down. And I knew nothing about it because I don't watch the news because it's all negative. And then I'm at a conference in Minnesota, and after my speech was over, a lady came up to me and she said, that was a great speech. Gang boss, tough guy, riots, ship outs. You're that, you was that dude. I'm like, yeah, that was an old life. She said, but well, that was a great speech, but can you do it? I said, what do you mean? She said, we have a situation in South Carolina but we need somebody that you just described to come in and talk to these guys. And at first I told her I was busy. I'm caught up in my pattern. I have my routine. I go to conferences, I get on stage, I give a speech, they clap, they give me their emails, we connect and we keep going forward. Mm. She disrupted my pattern. <laughs> and she's like, no, I need you to come do that, not talk about it. Then at first I was like, lady, I'm busy. I don't do that anymore. I did that the first five years I was home. And she said, where's your commitment to the work? Where's your commitment to the people behind the wall? Canceled my schedule, flew to South Carolina. We went in, and over six days, we talked to 8,000 prisoners at 10 different prisons. And when we talked to them, no violence, no riots, no problems, no issues. It was such a phenomenal thing 
if the director, Brian Sterling, asked us to come back and run a program. So we went back and we set up a program where the people died. We got all the top gang leaders and influencers and put them in one unit. And we started working with them. We started mentoring them. And we've been in for almost four years. We went from seven dead people to one fist fight. We went from people just being at each other's throats to one of my guys saved the officer's life last year. And it's just been phenomenal. But the director, Brian Sterling, had to do something different than what everybody else did. He had to disrupt the pattern of corrections and say, we have to do something different because it's not working. And he gave the chance to me to come in. He said, Andre, I believe in you. I trust in you. Make it work. I want to see these people better. I want to see them when they go home better. One thing I very rarely very, really hear in corrections, I want their kids to have dads and moms. We started not just going to the prison. We're going to alternative schools. We're going to power leagues. We're in the community. We're meeting with parents. We're meeting with civic leaders around making the entire state better, not just a group of men locked in a cage. What would you say is your vision for the Academy of Hope? My vision for the Academy of Hope as it grows is that there are very few programs and corrections for violent prisoners. Not talking about from the street, talking about inside. Um, people who are violent in prison, there are very little programs, if any, for them directly. And they call, they call it the shoe, lockdown, solitary. It's just the only program you have for like gang leaders and violent people. I project and give an alternative to just locking anybody. You can't lock everybody down. So what are you going to do when you let them out of the hole? It's still going to be the same. So my program or this program provides an opportunity for corrections to actually engage in a positive way people who've been in this circumstance, been violent, and we show them how to turn it around. Wow. So it sounds like you're doing that. Uh, is it in certain prisons or? We're in three states right now. And it's growing, but right now we're in three states. And my staff is made up of three components. People like myself who've been to jail and turn their lives around. Second, we have retired military because I believe civic pride is a huge component of what we need to teach men and women in jail. You need to learn to love the country, not just live in it. And third, we get some business professionals and some folks who've done businesses and they donate books, they do seminars and stuff like that. How do you get to more states and bigger reach? Because it sounds like, you know, this is something that can really impact and transform the, the prison system. Two things, two ways. One, you call your local governor or sheriff and say, hey, we got a program, you need to get it in and they can call us and we can make that arrangements. But two, the regular people who are at home right now saying, yeah, that's a phenomenal program, Join us, become a volunteer, do a virtual class. We have virtual setups where you can do Zooms online with the guys inside. You might have a course that you have on healthcare, fixing your credit, setting up an LLC, donate your course. Right now, there are tablets in prisons. And I work with a company called Securus and they provide tablets for the prisoners. And guys and girls who sit in prison cells can take courses and lessons and watch videos and encouraging and everybody can get access. Back when I was in prison, there's 2,000 people in the prison. There's only 50 seats in the classroom. So 99% of the population is not going to that class. Now, everybody, there's 2,000 people and there's 2,000 tablets. So we can mm -hmm. teach everybody, regardless if they're in solitary confinement or in general pop. That's truly amazing. Looking back on your life now, you know, when you wake up today and you look back on your past and where you came from to where you are today, how does that feel? And I'm so curious like what that feels like to wake up today knowing what you know now and where you are today and the impact you're having today and the impact you're going to have in the future. When I look back, it's like 
Could I have started sooner? Mm. Could I have come to this realization sooner? Probably not. It's like, we get Muhammad Ali without the stolen bike? Probably not. So it's, things have to happen for things to happen. So I don't question timing because that's something that's out of my control. I just try to say, how do I maximize every day? When I wake up in the morning, it's who can I help today? That's it. I don't judge. I don't, and they say, hey, this guy wants you to do his podcast. I didn't look to see how many followers you have or how many downloads you have. Don't care. If you want to sit here with me, I'm going to sit here with you. And stop qualifying people that have already been qualified for, for the fact that you're on the planet. If you're on the planet, you're qualified. You are a person. You're worthy of a conversation. There's no person not worthy of a conversation. Mm, I love that. Well, we could start to wrap up this episode and absolutely amazing story. The Bits of Gold podcast, all about waking up, finding your purpose, building your dream life, building a purpose-driven life. And I'm curious with that being said, what would be your Bits of Gold on how to build a purpose-driven life? One, stop trying to figure it out by yourself. Don't ask your friends because they're in the same pattern that you're in. You need to go outside of your friend group, outside of your family, and just go find people who are successful and talk to them. Now, if you can't go talk to, say, a Dan Sullivan or Chris Voss or Joe Polish because they're so far removed, read their books. Go find people who are living and doing well. Stop looking at Instagram and social media and try to find your life because people are actually creating that for you. It's all manufactured. Find people who are successful in the spaces that you respect. Hmm. You don't have to know them. I just so happened was at an event the other day. I just got booked to um, do a talk in September. Me, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. That's going to be a crazy green room. <laughs> <laughs> that That's green awesome. room is going to be crazy. But um, <laughs> I had no intentions on meeting Elon Musk, but it just happens. If you live in your green, people are always watching you. And people like to help people who are helping themselves. We give money to the guy at the end of the ramp, at the, t- at the end of the street, but we ain't really thinking about that's a one and done. It hits 10 bucks, five bucks, silly to buy. But when you see somebody actively working and actively trying, you want to get alongside that person. I've never wanted to get out inside my car and sit at the end of the ramp with a guy who's begging for check. I'll give her money, but I've never wanted to say, I should just get out of my car and spend a couple of hours with them. Never crossed my mind mm. because they're not really trying. When I see somebody going to school or going to work or staying up late or asking real questions, I want to get beside that person. I want to get out of my car and get next to that person and help them because I see them trying to help themselves. Love that. If someone wants to connect with you, find you, support the Academy of Hope, where can they do that? Where can they follow along? My website is AndreNorman.com. It has access to everything you would want to have access to. So if you go to AndreNorman.com, everything's there. Awesome. Andre, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story and just truly amazing. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on Apple iTunes podcast. It really helps with growing the show. With that, enjoy your week and continue to build your dream life, a life filled with purpose, intentionality, and a life you love. Have an amazing week. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.